welcome to part three of the 007 Countdown from Some Like It's Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-hosts, Scott Shelton and Jay Habib. Today on the podcast, we move into the Roger Moore era as we review Moore's first outing as, as James Bond, 1973's Live and Let Die. But first, how are you guys? You know, Scott, I'm not sure where this quote originates from, but there's like there's something along, there's a quote somewhere along the lines of like some events in life are so big that like there's life before this and there's life after this. And this Thursday, I'm going to watch the Snyder cut and there's going to be life before this and there's going to be life after this. And I am just on the edge of my seat to find out where I end up in life after this. All right, Scott, you're going to edit this out. We're not allowed to talk about the Snyder Cut. This. I, I, I'm not allowing. You're it right. We, we have to put up the. We have to save this for our Patreon. We got to put a twenty dollar paywall to it, talk about the no, Snyder Cut. No, I, I, I'm not. I do not want this podcast to even acknowledge the existence of the Snyder Cut. Um, so we're just going to cut that out. Um, Leave it in. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing pretty well. I've uh, been busy. I fell a little bit behind. This won't mean anything to anyone listening to this podcast whenever it's released, but I fell behind. I fell behind by a week on the uh, 2021 feature presentations challenge, so I got to catch up at some point this week. We'll see how that happens. Luckily, I fell behind on the week that was a movie less than 90 minutes. So yeah, of all the weeks, we fell behind on. It's kind of funny that this is the one. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I got to catch up on that. But otherwise, I'm doing well. You know, when Jay was talking about life before and life after something honestly thought he might have been talking about the movie we're about to talk about today because it was quite the experience well i was hoping that he was talking about march madness Uh, again this is going to sound really weird to people that are listening to this whenever but uh yeah the selection show just happened and uh it feels like nature is truly healing now that like last year this time of course was just like the most miserable time of march madness getting canceled you know COVID kicking off and it feels like now that we're we're here, March Madness is happening. Like it feels like we're we're close to being back. So um, that's exciting. Uh, now Tennessee losing will not be exciting, but yeah, I'm used to it by now. Um, all right, guys. Though, let's get into uh, our movie for today. After six films, of course, and we reviewed two of those from Russia with Love and Goldfinger. But after six films total, Sean Connery turned over the role of James Bond to Roger Moore, who began a seven-movie run with 1973's Live and Let Die. Directed by Goldfinger's Guy Hamilton, Live and Let Die sees Bond sent to New York to investigate the deaths of three MI6 agents, presumably at the hand of the mysterious Dr. Kananga, dictator of a small island nation named San San Monique, played by Yafet Kodo. Once in New York, Bond is nearly killed by a restaurant-owning mob boss who goes by the name Mr. Big, but escapes and in doing so catches the eye of Mr. Big's beautiful companion, Solitaire, a tarot card reader played by Jane Seymour. Bond's adventures soon take him to New Orleans and into the Deep South as he investigates a drug smuggling ring that may lead him to something more supernaturally sinister than he's ever encountered. Jay, we'll start with you. Does Guy Hamilton recapture the thrills of his Goldfinger, albeit with a new actor as 007? Or do Live and Let Die's campy tendencies render it a farce by the time the credits roll? The latter. Um, Scott, I I did not enjoy this movie, like, almost at all. Um, and it's, I feel like it's so rare that I come in, you know, so just pessimistic on a movie I've seen. Even in, like, the... I mean, I, I know, you know, we're in, in previous countdowns, we were dealing with, you know, the, the, the sliding high scale and whatever. But like, I remember coming in when we did the game 
in the Fincher countdown, and I was pretty pissed off about it. This was this was worse than that. Um, I was I was bored, honestly, and like I know I know we've talked about this a little bit offline, and you know you, you might not agree, but the long and short of it was I was just bored, and the plot again like didn't make sense, but I didn't think that what was going on, you know, what like like in terms of like you know the 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 funny little scenes that were happening or Roger Moore's charm, like none of it was enough to really draw me back in. Um, I also just felt like, and this isn't necessarily a knock on the bond formula, which I know we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about later, but like, I felt like there were so many similarities between this movie and the first two movies we saw in terms of just like little plot points that like, because I wasn't enjoying the movie, I, I, I came down even harder on it. Cause I was like, wow, like this is just like what happened in Goldfinger. And this is just like what happened in from Rush up with love. So yeah, long and short of it, that, I just did not enjoy that. And I almost didn't finish the movie um, and was preparing to come in saying I didn't even bother to finish it. But I, I figured for the sake of discussion, I should. Look, if we can make it, if Scott and I can make it through some of the stuff that we've watched on Some Like It, Scott, um, then I think you can make it through this film. Um, but yeah, no, Scott, uh, what, what are your general impressions on Live and Let Die? Yeah, I think. It's so weird to think that this movie was also it was directed by the same person who directed Goldfinger, right. because <laughs> because this is a totally different flavor of Bond. I feel like it's it's one of those things where it starts out like you have the sort of opening scenes with the assassinations and whatnot. And you're like, okay, this this feels like the same brand, I guess, uh, of Bond that we'd seen in the first two parts of the countdown. You get the feel for it, and then just like pretty much as soon as bond lands in like new york man th this film takes like a 90 degree turn towards like crazyville and in, in in terms of like just the absolutely crazy things that get said first off that like are implied in other parts and then just like how things are generally portrayed on screen is just wild i think that my key takeaway and, and not that this you couldn't make this probably accusation before this film in the first two movies that we watched but like Bond's like kind of dumb in the in this movie. And second, like I just like I I know this is a product of the 70s, but there's just like so many things wrong with this film. Like the 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 part that just stuck out to me the most is just like the scene where Bond is like following I guess it's technically is it Kananka that he's that he, I mean like they're the same person or whatever, but like Kananka that he's following in New York City from the embassy with the like, cab driver yeah with the cat like he's in the cab and just like every black person in new york city apparently apparently is from san monique who's <laughs> like in on in on the gang in uh, harlem which, at least yeah. yeah at least in harlem that's fair uh the, what a, just a wild what a wild time yeah i mean here's the thing i i totally get jay feeling not disliking this movie i totally get uh you know thinking that it doesn't make any sense because it doesn't um, I totally get all of the criticism, you know, m most of the criticisms that are going to be lobbed at this movie. Uh, I don't get saying it's boring, to be honest with you, because I mean, this movie is insane. Uh, to, to Scott's point, like that you honestly just have no idea what you're going to see next. I mean, the villain's death in this movie uh, is one of the most bizarre things that you will see probably in, in any of the movies that we're going to watch um, in, in this uh it, you know, I, and I had forgotten that. I guess, I guess for some reason, you know, I thought I, I mentioned this last time, but 
I mentioned, oh, we're not doing Octopussy and A View to a Kill, right, which are considered to be like, you know, the truly like, you know, crazy, uh, you know, just dumb, farcical James Bond movies. I, I guess I didn't remember uh, that, you know, there's some of these campy elements. There's a lot of these campy elements, even in the early movies, right? Uh, even in the ones that are more well-received, like this one is one of the more well-received of um, of the James Bond or of the Roger Moore um, seven films. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. And, you know, it's clear that they're trying to do something different, like to Scott's point. And I think that, you know, some of that comes with, we didn't necessarily, I mean, we didn't watch the last couple of Connery movies, but, you know, they got into Blofeld was introduced in like, you only live twice and there's diamonds are forever. And I feel like they started getting more like serialized a little bit and maybe, um, you know, a little darker and, uh, you know, th things like that in those last couple of movies. And it feels like they wanted to take a left turn here. They wanted to try something different. Um, because this is not super faithful to Ian Fleming's novels, right? Like Ian, uh, Daniel Craig is known as being like the bond that is the most faithful to Ian Fleming's novels. Um, I'm not sure what Ian Fleming thought or would have thought about <laughs> these movies, but, um, you know, th these are, these movies are goofy. Uh, and, you know, that, that obviously has its, its ups and downs. I mean, I, I will say like, again, I, I don't think it's a great movie. I don't, um, I think it makes no sense. Absolutely. Um, again, I think with some of the problems that we've talked about it with the past couple of movies are here for sure. Uh, but it's a fun watch at the end of the day for me. And like, again, talking about these Bond films, the problems that I do have with a lot of them, you know, with some of the ones that I remember are them being boring. And like the fact that I wasn't bored feels like a victory. Um, and, you know, I've said all along that I don't really care if the, I don't really care so much if the movies make sense um, as long as they're showing me some, you know, cool stuff. And there's some really weird stuff in this movie, but there's also some cool actions. Like there's some really just wild action scenes. There's like the boats on land, like this, these boats on land, like this sequence is, is out of control. There's a scene in an airport hangar where they're like driving the air, the airplane around the hangar. Um, and like it, the car is chasing it. I mean, like just, just crazy stuff that you'd never think of doing. That actually reminds me of like some like nineties action movies, which is like my favorite era personally of, um, of action movies probably. Uh, so I, I, I don't mind when movies go over the top. Now I, I do think this movie's pretty dumb. Um, and it's certainly no classic or, you know, not, not going to be one of my favorites in the James Bond franchise, probably. But um, at the end of the day, I did enjoy it um, and wasn't bored. So I, I guess I would consider it a success. Although, again, it's like it, it's hard to draw that line between where it where it is just like campy fun and where it crosses over into, okay, this is too much. Like this is just kind of just stupid and, and insulting a little bit. And I think the movie probably does cross that line a few times. Um, but I also think there's plenty of campy thrills to be had. Um, and that on the whole, this is probably a good uh, movie to sample the, what we're going to, you know, what, what sort of what Roger Moore was known for um, as a James Bond, which, Yes, the, all of his films are, are you know, defined more by uh, more tongue in cheek, uh, like take those little one liners that Bond has and like just dial that up to 11. Like imagine there was like a whole movie of, of scenes that are uh, orchestrated just so Bond can get that his one liner in at the end. Right. His cheesy one liner, whatever it may be. Well, uh, what, what is it he says after the mask moment? Like, 
uh, wasn't that revealing or something like that. Um, yeah, they're, they're, they're all over this movie. But um, I'm interested to hear what you guys think about Roger Moore himself as James Bond. Again, we've talked here already about how he's doing something very different than Sean Connery um, as Bond. Uh, but Scott, I'll ask you first. Um, did you find him successful in this role? How did you feel that he compared to Connery, who I think we were mostly positive on in this role? Yeah, Roger Moore for me was an interesting one. I think that on the surface, he has a lot of the qualities that I think that you look for in your Bond. And I, and I will reserve judgment on, I think, my final opinion of him at, as Bond until we watch um, you know, our second, our second Moore film next week. But I think... At the start, I'll say he has the right vibe or aura about him. Maybe it's definitely not quite the same as Connery for sure. Um, and certainly not Craig when you get to it, uh, when we get to him. But I think he he does bring his own vibe of Bond that fits the like stereotype or archetype mold that you'd expect from Bond. The problem is I, I don't know if he has it <laughs> underneath is, is the thing. I, I really struggled with that um, as I as I went through the movie because... Again, he has the sort of like cool guy, suave vibe to him, I think, that you see. But again, like I, I'm not sure if it's the performance or the script or a little bit of both. But I just found this Bond to be like kind of dumb and like not particularly clever in the grand scheme of things. And that really put me off him for the most part, or at least in, in this film. I wonder if that will change in the next one. Um and we'll see we'll see how things go but i think one of the things that connery had you know just to reference the two movies that we've talked about so far on the countdown that more doesn't is that i felt like bond even though he didn't always make the right decisions or didn't always um you know didn't always seem to be in control of the situation i think we talked about that even with goldfinger last week it really felt like sean connery like knew like his bond like knew what was going on and you know, for what for whatever it was worth, like he had enough control of the situation that it felt like it felt within his grasp. And I didn't feel that in this movie. And I didn't feel that with Roger Moore's Bond again. Not un unclear to me if it's the performance or this particular movie. So luckily we have another one to figure that out next week. But for me, again, on the surface, yes. You know, it. you know, when when push came to shove in the movie and the business end, I'm not sure that he did. Jay. Yeah, nothing nothing really interesting to add. I think Scott actually pretty much nailed all my thoughts on this. I think, again, I don't want to rehash everything you just said, but yeah, I think on the surface, you know, he ticks all the boxes and it also just didn't really come through for me. I will also withhold judgment until next week. But, you know, I, I remember giving Connery's, like my perception of Connery's bought a little bit of flack last week, as Scott mentioned, you know, what, it felt like, you know, he should have died like 10 times in that movie. And to me, it felt like Roger Moore's character should have died like a hundred times in this movie. And yeah, I don't know that because like, I don't, I feel like Connery just like, I mean, again, he's only been my bond for all of two weeks. So, you know, you can take these opinions as like loosely as you want, but like he just had like a certain swagger. And again, like a certain like know-it-all that like Scott mentioned that I just didn't feel in Roger Moore. So it's not, a, it's not even necessary that he like needed that, but I feel like I just really appreciated that in the first two bond viewings I've had. And like, I kind of just missed that in this one. 
Yeah. I, I mean, here's the thing. Like, I have never, like, I understand the people that don't enjoy the more films for various reasons. Um, but I, I don't know that he is like the number one problem that people generally have. Um, and I, I mean, I, I certainly agree with that. I've never thought that even though he's probably ranks lower on almost everyone's Bond list, um, uh, you know, of actors who play Bond. I, I mean, I, I've never had much of a problem with him in, in the role. Like, I think he fits the role well. Like, it's not like, well, this guy should just not be playing James Bond or anything like that. Like, I get why he's plays James Bond. I think he, you know, brings oftentimes what you expect to this role. Um, but yeah, maybe, I mean, again, I think these are just conscious choices to take the character in a different direction of him being a little more clueless, I guess. And, um, you know, like there's all this, like when he's going to Harlem and all this, you know, everyone's like acting like he's just some sort of idiot really for like this honky or whatever, as they, as they call it several times in the movie, he's just going to roll up into Harlem without, there's like, a, there's a culture shock element, I feel like to bond in New York and in the deep South here that we didn't necessarily get in the Connery movies, even when he was like going all over the world, right? Like it just seemed like he, he was able to sort of acquit himself nicely wherever he was, whereas Bond seems very out of his element um, in, you know, when they're when he's in New York. And then, you know, later on when they're in like the Deep South um, and like some of the stuff with like Sergeant Pepper or Deputy Pepper or whatever his name is, J.W. Pepper. J.W., uh, baby. Like the scene where he just like walks up walks up to bond and is just like rah, 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 rah. bond like the look on roger moore's face is just like i have never witnessed anything like this before it also seems like he's a little bit more like sure the bond girls and all that are like an element of you know all of these movies that we've watched but it seems like he's he's he chases the bond girls a little bit more um than uh maybe connery did um like he's not quite as cool as connery like well like he walks in like you know, he's, he goes to the restaurant, right? And he, you know, the wall turns around and he's in like this very, very dangerous, like place ostensibly with like, you know, Kananga or, or Mr. Big, what I mean, same guy ultimately, but Mr. Big at that point, just ordering like him to be killed or whatever. And Bond, the only thing he seems concerned about in this like entire room or whatever is, you know, solitaire and her tarot cards and all of that. Like that's, he's, he goes straight there and not to the fact that, wow, I was just sitting in a restaurant and then all of a sudden my booth turned around and now I'm in some sort of secret chamber. Like, maybe I should investigate why that is the case. No, he just like walks up to this woman and starts flirting. I mean, that's basically what happens in this scene. And then of course he has to escape. But um, but yeah, like, uh, I mean, you know, there, he does have his moments, I guess, like the whole tarot cards thing, how he sort of like tricks, where he sort of tricks um, Solitaire into you know, thinking that they're meant to be lovers or whatever is kind of, I mean, problematic in a way. But also, I, I, I guess you could say it's clever, but at the same time, it's it's probably more just a case of her being very dumb. Um, you should try it sometimes, Scott, in my work. Yeah, a problem in, in and of itself, yeah. No. Um, but yeah, that's, I mean, that's kind of my take on more. Like, you're not going to really hear me say, especially not in the next movie, which I quite like, but uh, I mean, at least from my memory. But um, yeah, you're not going to hear me say that he's like a terrible Bond or anything. I mean, I, I don't know that there's any actor that is a terrible Bond that they've chosen so far. Um, I'm not as familiar with Timothy Dalton, who we're going to watch, but I don't mean, nobody seems to think he's like terrible or anything. But 
it's just, you know, I think I think the people's perspectives on who is the best Bond are often defined by what do you want from this character of Bond? And less people want this, you know, campy sort of tongue in cheek, wink, wink um, thing that that Roger Moore brings. And, you know, more people want the cool, sophisticated secret agent that, you know, you see with Sean Connery or um or Daniel Craig, but you know, as we'll see, like the, there are alternating eras. Again, like when we go to Dalton, his is a little bit more serious, but then Brosnan again is a little bit more goofy. So it, you know, it, it it alternates back and forth. But um, yeah, that's that's kind of my take on more. Um, I've already well, mentioned. So, well, I want to say one more thing about more. It's like it's honestly, it wasn't the camp that bought. I mean, maybe this is maybe this is oversimplifying it too much, but it wasn't the camp of this of this movie that made me feel like I wasn't as enchanted with whatever more was doing with bond again going back to i just felt like he was kind of dumb like he's when they first get to the island in san monique and i forget the the woman that you know pretends like that she's like a is it rosie is that her name yeah yeah r- like rosie like they're like running through the forest or whatever and she gets like shot by one of like the remote like dr- like scarecrows or whatever or like um you know, guys. You know, what I'm talking about. And he just like looks around and then like what, like finds her, looks around, like walks off. And I'm just like, what on earth? Like, what a weird reaction. What a weird reaction to that. I don't yeah. know. That, that's an example of something I just felt like was you wouldn't. I would not expect the bond of the la- of you know the last two weeks to have reacted that way to that situation. And I, I, just yeah, to throw it, one it, one more thought in sure. about just about the one liners, I actually didn't mind them at all. I, I yeah. thought they were kind of funny. Like they're they're dumb, but like they're funny. You know, like just disarming. You know, when he like throws them out the train, throws his arm. Yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah. Okay, that was that was funny. Like, yeah. Just throwing that out. The camp didn't bother me that much. Like either. Uh, from a physical perspective, I did find because th- that's something else about Roger Moore. Right, he was like fifty when they started like he was 10 years older than Connery was. Um, mm-hmm. And so I did find it funny. I mean, it probably wasn't him. Obviously it was a stunt double, I'm sure. But like the, 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 one, foot cha- the one foot chase yeah. early on. No, not that. Although that was kind of funny too. The one foot chase early on where he like runs down the stairs and then like he grabs a hold and like swings around. It was like the, and kicks a guy. It was like the slowest yeah. rotation ever. I was like, anybody would have dodged this. Like, this is an old man who's doing this. But I mean, again, it was it had to be a stunt double, but it was still kind of funny that it was Robert like, so De Niro stunt. and the Irishman. Yeah. Well, I mean, and yeah, stomping just, that guy. He's certainly not as agile um, as maybe you would expect to see from Bond. But um, I mean, can you imagine someone like Ro- like not even Roger Moore specifically, but someone like Roger Moore doing like the kind of stunts that like Daniel Craig is asked to do in the Bond movies he's doing? Crazy, crazy stuff. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I don't, I can't even, uh, you know, fathom that, but yeah, I, I agree with what, I mean, I understand what Scott is saying that like, there are a lot of moments that it feels like, shouldn't you be reacting in like a different way to this than you are? Like, it just seems like you're kind of just, okay, just rolling with the punches of, uh, you know, with everything. And I don't think that necessarily translates to like the cool, as much as the cool factor, as you might think, just like, oh, I'm, I'm, un, you know, unfazed by anything. Well, no, like I think there are certain things you should be faced by. But um, yeah, as we've already mentioned, the Bond girl, Solitaire here, Jane Seymour um, in the role. Again, we kind of have a couple of Bond girls. We have um, Rosie Carver, who you mentioned, who is a um, CIA agent. Um, 
And, but, you know, again, not, I mean, th this is, again, this is the formula, like you have a Bond girl who is a little bit lesser, oftentimes ends up getting killed off, which is what happens here, spoiler alert. Um, and then you have sort of the main Bond girl who, again, maybe starts out as the henchman of the villain, like, which we kind of saw with Pussy Galore in, in, uh, in Goldfinger, her being sort of, you know, a right-hand woman of Goldfinger. Um, and here, Le less of uh, an example of like solitaire necessarily like being in cahoots with Mr. Big or anything, but she is sort of his companion um, when we first meet her. Um, but what did you think about Jane Seymour and this character of solitaire, who again has this background of being a tarot card reader um, that seems to be her entire identity in this movie? But uh, Jay, what did you think about this character? You know, last week I, I used a an expression to describe Bond's sexual prowess. Um, and I didn't think I could get like more like infuriated with that concept until we watched this movie. Jane Seymour was like, a, you know, as like a character is like fine. Obviously, you know, we already touched on, you know, that whole tricking her with the card thing was like super not okay. But then the fact that like she's, you know, reeling, like, this is really the moment that she's going to, like, last, like, stick with me. So, like, I'm just going to harp on it. Like, the fact that she's, like, reeling from the fact that she has literally lost the ability to, like, see the future. And, like, by the end of this conversation that she's having with Bond about that fact. And the fact that it happened because they, like, you know, like, slept together. Like, asks him if they can sleep together. Like, do we have time for the third lesson or whatever she said? I was like, are you kidding me? And that's, that's really, like, what I'm going to, like, take away from this. Like, obviously, you know, the idea of, like, someone who, like, quote-unquote, like, could see the future is, like, kind of interesting. And, like, you know, there was a certain, like, flair about, you know, the way she, like, her get-ups. And, like, again, like, you know, she does, like, correctly predict things, like, early on in the movie. And that was, like, kind of cool. But, again, like, the lasting memory for me is just going to be, like, you lost your, like, psychic powers. And then you're just, like, over it because Bond is, like, so good in bed. Well, but but that's the thing, and that's that's how she loses her psychic powers, right? Is that she loses her virginity, and therefore her psychic power, and and we're just supposed to be like okay with that. I mean, and again, like, I, and like, I mean, that's just it, right? Like, you can like point at this whole thing and be like, it's all entirely ridiculous. But like, I'm still yeah. just gonna harp on the fact that like she again like lost her powers and was just kind of over it, and like wanted to like sleep with Bond more. No, like, yeah, no, I, my I, goodness, I, I, like. I agree. Like it's, it seems very like, again, it, you, when we meet the character, she's, she's like very, this is her, again, this is her identity. She's very serious about these tarot, tarot cards. Um, you know, like it's obviously very important to her. She's very like spiritually minded or whatever you want to call it. And Bond is just like, he doesn't really care. He just got, you know, gallops in. How there. about this dick? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he pulls that, he turns that card over. Um, yeah. And, you know, he's, he, uh, you know, he sleeps with her. She loses her psychic powers. And again, he just doesn't really seem bothered by any of this. The fact that like he's taken away from her the one thing that clearly like meant the most to her because he was, you know, he's a horn dog. Um, but then to your point, Jay, she doesn't seem that bothered by it either, which is not really like super, uh, a, a super consistent character, I guess. Plus she just sort of kind of, she kind of goes away for like the, you know, second last 45 minutes or so of the movie like i i don't know she just it seems like she was a non-factor for quite a while until we get back to the train at the very end obviously scott what did you think it's it's really confusing like this character and again 
I, I want to say that I think part of it is like totally the plot. And maybe this is like just one of the real shortcomings of this film overall, but just like the whole notion here of like bond, certainly not being very bothered by that, which is like probably bond, right? Like that's like probably who bond is as a character, like not really caring what, like the, the aftermath of what he does to these women. Uh, I think that that's definitely what we've seen so far in the last, you know, in the previous two weeks of our countdown, we'll see if that changes over time or not, but that feels very on brand for bond. But then, yeah, like again, super shallow character. It's like in terms of her, not really seeming that bothered by it either. And just, you know, wanting more, you know, of that same thing. That's sort of just kind of ruined her life, especially if, you know, her life sort of not only like, is it something that she cares about or I think again, maybe that's a little bit complicated, but like, it seems like that is her method of survival, right? Like the, certainly the implication is that Mr. Big is going to kill her if, yeah. if she loses her powers and, our, our ability to see the future. And so it's again, this like really confusing plot point where like they go to the airstrip or whatever in San Monique. And she like for a moment also betrays like, I was really, really confused what's happening on the airstrip besides just like the bonkers flying, like driving around the airstrip and plane, which is a freaking wild scene. Um, but also just like, ha- like completely, I have no idea. Like I had at that point, the plot completely lost me. Like I have no idea what's going on with this character specifically. And I think that all of that is to say that like Jane Seymour is just like totally on an island by herself. Maybe uh, I mean no no pun intended. Literally in that sense. Yeah. yeah, um, In this film, because I don't like her character is just like bizarre in terms of like I couldn't decide if I feel like this was like I don't know like some sort of like super culturally appropriative. Um, character, which it very well might have been. There's a shit ton of that in this movie, um, or like, or, or like, how she ended up. If if it's not like some sort of like cultural appropriation tactic, how like she ended up at all, like with Mister, like with Mister Big or Kananka, you know, who how, like however you want to like, you know, whatever you want to call him. Um, like I'm just like then like super confused how these people even came together, which makes me believe that the characters just like all all wrong. <laughs> like there's just something very, all wrong about this, and so I don't know if there's much Jane Seymour can really do about that. But for me, this character was just a big wolf. I thought that we were doing a little bit better in Goldfinger, um, for the reasons that I elaborated on last week. Although I think there still were a lot of shortcomings. Don't get me wrong. Uh, this one felt like a huge regressive step back and like. A new way, like this is a this is a completely new failure to the, what we saw in uh, from Russia with love. You know, if we're just talking about purely in our in our countdown lens. So yeah, big disappointment for this character. Not sure Jane Seymour can do much about it, but this character sucks. I think the underlying sort of whole notion of this character and a lot of the things that happen in this movie sucks. And I hope we do better next time. <laughs> Well, I was going to say, I mean, uh, well, uh, it will be an interesting conversation to have because there is a female secret agent in the next movie who plays a sort of a sidekick role almost to Bond. But um, but I was going to say, you know, the, the three movies that we've seen so far have kind of sort of had similar problems in this area with like they set up the Bond girl as having a potentially like interesting backstory. Right. Like P- Pussy Galore has this whole pilot thing going on in this whole school of, you know, female pilots that she's training um and even Flying tatiana circuit. yeah even tatiana in the first movie you know is a secret agent a double agent um and what was she like a, a dancer or something right or am i imagining that um, you're imagining that she worked for the okay, kgb whatever the kgb yeah. was. well 
either way, like they, they set up the character as like, oh, here's this is a character that could potentially have agency, right? They have sort of a backstory of their own. And then all of that goes out the window as soon as Bond turns up and they're just like, um, you know, just nothing but slaves to his charms, really. Um, and Min yeah, that's his minimalist charms. That's where we're, I mean, that, that, that's kind of the, the trend we're going to see for a little bit here, I think. Um, and it, it is what it is. Like, you know, I, I didn't come into the, these movies expecting to see anything better than that, but um, yeah, I do feel like this is a, this character is definitely weaker than what we saw in Goldfinger probably. Um, because yeah, I mean, it, it's, it is la almost laughable how quickly she just like drops everything that is interesting about her identity and just becomes, um, you know, another damsel in distress for, for Bond to rescue. But yeah, it is what it is. Um, the villains. real on girl though is JW. Absolutely. They should get together. <laughs> we'll get to him. Uh, villains. Um, I mean, we can mention him now as a villain because he is kind of a villain in a way. Um, in many here. respects, I'd say he's a villain. Yeah, exactly. Um, but you know, we have a few villains here. Um, of course, the big bad is Mr. Big uh, slash Kananga, who is Yafet Kodo, who's, you know, a, a, actually a pretty uh, acclaimed actor. You know, he was in stuff like Alien and um, a movie called Blue Collar. Um, that's a heist movie. That's kind of a classic. Um, and, you know, just just several other things. Um, and he's your big bad here. Um, you also have sort of the sidekick who is Teehee. Um, which he is like the odd job of this movie, right? Like he's like the henchman who has like a weird thing about him. This, in this case, he being that he has a prosthetic arm. Um, and, you know, there's also Baron Samidi, who is like the voodoo chief um, who plays a little bit of a role in the movie. And yeah, well, I mean, we might as well go ahead and talk about it. J.W. Pepper, um, who is this country sheriff who is almost, uh, his dialogue is almost un unintelligible for most of his time on screen. Um, who, who not pops because up. of his accent though, but because of the amount of dip in his mouth, I think. Yeah, well, a little, a little of this, a little of that, probably. But, um, but yeah, who shows up once we get into like the deep south and um, you know the boat chase and all of that New stuff. New Orleans. Um, yeah, Pepper shows up and he's something not, else. He, uh, he's not know, Pepper Potts, that's for sure. Fun fact, we're not going to be watching the next film in the series, which is The Man with the Golden Gun. But he actually does appear in The Man with the Golden Gun as well. So um, I, unfortunately, I'm starving you guys of some more pepper. But um, I think you can just go to your pantries and find the right amount of pepper that you really want. But um, Jay, uh, what were your thoughts on these villains? Um, you leaving know, that one in, it, that's for sure. Be it Pepper. Oh, I want you to leave it in. Uh, it was a good joke. Uh, I have so Pepper, many emotions about everything you're saying right now. Mr. Big, Teehee, any of them. What, what, what did you think about this cavalcade of villains? Um, Let's start with Pepper, because I'll just say this quickly, and then I'm just going to move on. That whole thing didn't really do anything for me. That chase scene just... that Again, that was one of those things I was like, I feel like I've seen a high-speed boat chase in a different Bond movie. Um, I'm like, again, I didn't... I didn't really care what was going on with him. Like, it was kind of funny. They're like, oh, he thinks it's his brother-in-law, like, you know, like coming to save the day on his boat. It's like his brother-in-law probably doesn't look like that. Like, haha. -ha. And, you know, it that, I don't know, that whole thing, like, I have, I honestly have no idea how long that whole, like, part of the movie is that seemingly, like, fixates on him with occasionally cutting in shots of Roger Moore on the boat. But let's just call it 10 minutes. Maybe it was 15. I don't know. 
I felt like it just forgot that this was like a Bond movie for that time. Like, oh, it just became like, like, like I don't know. Like, we just had some like live action like Looney Tunes just like inserted into this movie, and it just was really weird. JW's um, Elmer Fudd. Yeah, it just didn't work for me. And then, you know, in talking about like the the big villains, right? Like, I mean, it, no pun intended there, Mister Big, and then Tehe, like, you know, again, like the plot not really making sense just is like like just didn't help again like there there are all these issues i feel like with i I don't want to like necessarily start like a giant discussion on this but like the long and short of it is like i read into like why they chose to go with this movie next and basically they thought that you know it would be like daring do given like how active the black panthers were at this time and so choosing like black villains would be like aha and it's like okay but you know as like villains like i I didn't find either of them particularly super woke albert broccoli speaking to the people yeah and so, you know, I, I, but like, even aside from that, like, I didn't find the, the villains like super memorable, you know, Tihi again, like has the weird arm. He also like crushed something in it. And it was like, oh, like funny. I've seen that too. And you know, they, again, like there wasn't really anything to, like, in my opinion, like take away from this. And like, I think one of the redeeming factors and Goldfinger, I mean, obviously I loved, it was an odd job. I, I keep forgetting it was odd job or oddball. It was odd job. You know, I loved the hat thing, but then also like, I felt like the main villain was very much propped up like you know by the by like the plot the final plot right and like this crazy attempt on like fort knox and again i don't really know what even happened to like the poppy fields at the end and like the 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 plan like although it was like again like crazy grandiose and ski and like or like in idea just again like didn't amount to anything so there was like nothing there's nothing really for me to like remember from this is kind of like how I felt like again like this is this is why I called it boring I'm like like what exactly is happening like am I waiting for this guy to like get his like poppy shipments out like what you know where's my attack on Fort Knox like if you're that, looking that for answers just like set the bar high you know if you're looking for answers on what happened in this movie or what what the plot you know was you've come to the wrong podcast because I don't think any of us are necessarily going to be able to to provide those um but yeah, no. And the thing is, right, we haven't talked about this element too of Mr. Big. Like, you know, there's supposed to be some sort of surprise element in the fact that, oh, Kananga turned out to be Mr. Big all along. Uh, and it's just like the most telegraphed like reveal that you could possibly see come. I mean, he literally just looks like Kananga with a mask. I mean, and we barely even get that much time with either character, to be honest with you, with Kananga or with Mr. Big to the point where it's like, he starts taking off the mask and you're like, wait a minute, was this supposed to be like a big deal or something that they were the same guy? Like you would, you would be forgiven for have thinking for have already been thinking beforehand that this was the same person. Um, But they act like it's supposed to be some sort of big reveal. And also the scene where he takes off the mask is just like, how did they, how was this the take that they went with? Let's say David Fincher was not involved. Yeah. I was going to say they would still be there shooting this scene. If David Fincher had directed um, this movie with the number of takes they would have done but goodness like look f- fast forward it's whatever still it awkward. Is, 18 years or whenever i don't even know what 20 years this is 73 right it was a 73 yeah fast forward 22 years and you'll see a mask removal that looks a hell of a lot better than this hmm. yeah well i'm i mean again he like he takes off his mask and it's just like okay you kind of look very similar to how you did before like is this <laughs> is this a big deal um, yeah, i was a little confused i thought he was gonna i thought he probably should have just taken off some makeup that he was wearing yeah instead of i mean mask. 
but Scott, what did you think about the villains in this movie? Oh yeah. Um, wonderful, wonderful villains. Very memorable for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> um, yeah, look, I think Mr. Big's like fine, but I think in the grand scheme of things, you know, maybe we're not going to get the full breadth of it here in this particular countdown, only watching 10 of the 24 movies really so far. But I don't, I don't think that in terms of big bads in a movie, Mr. Big is going to rank that highly in the grand scheme of things. I think that for many reasons, he's a little bit of a nothing burger. I mean, if anything, you could say like his henchmen, right? But which isn't necessarily, I mean, maybe you could even make arguments that this is even maybe more common than not, I guess, but like his henchmen, like Teehee is probably a little bit more memorable just because of that, you know, because of that quirk, because of the arm or whatnot. I mean, some of the most iconic Bond villains are the ones with sort of body modifications, if you will. And I think that overall that and, and Baron Semity just being sort of like a little bit more out there, although you know, maybe more than a little bit racist uh, depiction involved with that on, on the whole. But like, I feel like you could have leaned into that character more, done some more interesting things with it, made it a little bit more nuanced, made it a little bit, I don't know, feeling just like less icky and, and just like wrong and done something really interesting with him like as a villain. Right. But like he ultimately he's on the screen for like five minutes or whatever, 10 minutes. I don't even know. Um, and so like you don't you don't get that layer, which is I feel like a re recursive conversation we've had for a while about a lot of things <laughs> bond related is that the the right parts or the right people aren't getting the enough time with enough nuance to to really come to anything. And I, and I felt that in this. I mean, Mr. Big gets enough time, although you still have no no ab absolutely no clue why he's doing any of this whatsoever. No, I mean, someone could explain that to me. Maybe I don't know. At least I understood what Goldfinger was doing. Um Right. Like, th like this plot, again, this just speaks to something that I feel like I've already been talking about a lot in the last, you know, however long we've been recording now. It's just like n nothing makes any sense in this movie. Like, I have absolutely no idea what's going on or why anyone's doing anything, to be honest. And the that speaks to my general lack of care about and probably lack of ability to remember any of these people, but even by the end of the countdown, let alone if I were watching all all the Bond movies. So I think it's unfortunately a big letdown overall for me and even with you know the more interesting premises for some of like the side villains they don't make anything of them that that's meaningful and so we're kind of left with something that is more than a bit disappointing yeah no i uh i can't can't disagree uh t he again feels like sort of a little bit of wasted potential his yeah. he has a, he has a mechanical arm that's all there is to him but uh i will say in the next movie we are going to get pr probably the best physically tricked out uh, henchman character villain that you will see in um, in the James Bond uh, franchise with Jaws. So uh, you have we have that to look forward to uh, next time. But uh, yeah, the, the, I mean, it, it allows for a nice fight scene at the very end of the movie on the train um, with the prosthetic arm. But. I, I, like it's so goofy like the prosthetic arm appears to be held together by like two rubber bands that are like this thin, and he snaps them and you get like the the twing like that sound effect that is just like out of a, out of like a cartoon or something it's it's really funny that like that's all it took to like just render his arm completely inoperable was just like to snap these two like threads basically um but yeah missed opportunity um let's talk about something though that i hope for a second you know that i hope that we are all on the same page is probably the best part about this movie and that's the theme song uh live and let die paul mccartney and wings uh, give it to the wings hyping, baby i was hyping it up last week as hey this is probably the best 
in contention with uh, a couple others, including again the one we're going to see next time. But um, I uh, Scott actually I, just I chose hope... all, all of his favorite Bond songs for the movies that we want. I did, yeah. Um, no, because Diamonds Are Forever is you know pretty pretty big banger as well. That's Charlie Bassey again. But um, but yeah, no. Uh, did you are, are are you guys on board with uh, with this song and the opening credits and all that? Um, you know, as being probably the best we've heard so far. Yes, I I can get on board with that. I mean, the music was great. The song is awesome. The opening credits like got me excited about this movie. Didn't yeah, really get from there, but that's okay. Well, it's a great song, like, and it does it does really hard in that in that opening credit sequence. But then, like, when they bring it back in the movie, sometimes yeah. like that that uh, that refrain that like dun 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 just feels like really like out of place in the movies. But also, it, it also kind of fits <laughs> with the goofy vibe, I guess, a little bit of the of the movie in a way. But like, if you had put that in in like one of the Sean Connery movies, like that that riff in particular. We would have been like, "What? Like, what's going on here? Like, it, it, the epic, like the epic slow burn, like torch song uh, feel definitely fit the Connery era more than um, than this um, song uh, would. But yeah, I mean, it's not in the Connery era, so it, it you know, I think it complements the movie well. And you know, Paul McCartney is great, but uh, yeah, I did want to give a shout out to that for just a moment because it is um, such a such so as it, it is, it is one of the most positive elements of the movie. I think that we can all agree on. But um, oh yeah, another for, for thing sure. that I the, the, so, no, I will say that the no, music ahead, is no. really good. I I think that it's one of those things like just as a song, I really I liked more even than Goldfinger. But I think in terms of like iconic, I I wonder if Goldfinger ends up being more iconic just because of the combination of the song and the movie being like just way better than this piece of garbage. Uh, but yeah, overall the song, I I really enjoyed the song. And agree about the whole point about the motif. It kind of came up in in weird scenarios. I believe, uh, Scott, that we also saw this song performed live at uh, at Bonnery when Paul McCartney uh, performed. So I believe did he did he play it? I I, 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 can't, I can't remember that far ago. He usually does during his solo sets, but uh, yeah, no, we've had like uh, ten pandemics since then. So I do know when he played Glastonbury in two thousand four. This was the song that he played when like the fireworks shot off and everything over the pyramid stage. So that's kind of a, a cool thing to go back and watch. But um, another thing that I enjoyed about the movie, as you may be able to tell, was the action sequences. Um, I think the practical effects here are kind of like crazy. Honestly, the you know the stunt work and everything is really good. Like with the the boats driving on, you know, land and so, and stuff, yeah. which is not something. There's a lot of vehicles that should not be like driving on land, like driving on land. Like you have the the airplane hangar scene that I mentioned, where it's basically a car chase between like a car and an airplane, um, which is wild. Um, and then yeah, again, you have all of these boats that are just like uh, my favorite part being when it like destroys like a wedding setup or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> the gr- the groom and the bride or the the bride just starts like crying um, there again. It's just like totally insane stuff that like probably doesn't belong anywhere in the movie, but that's what I kind of enjoyed about it. I also love like in that in that same scene. I don't know if you like watch the groom at all, but he's like laughing. I'm like they couldn't just like. Like they just could not get the guy yeah. to like stop laughing to get it taken. <laughs> it's like unbelievable. Probably so. Um, what what stood out to you guys about the uh, the action in this movie? You know, there's a few chases as well. Scott's mentioned the uh, you know the cab and all of that in New York early on. The, the yeah. foot chase, like I mentioned, where he swings around and kicks the guy. Um, what stood out? Probably the most. I mean, look, guys, the villain death is 
outrageous but uh it's amazing that, that yeah, was, it out. Sorry, we, didn't, we haven't even talked about the crocodiles or the sharks yet so i was about to so the crocodile stuff is interesting right and like i'm watching it and i'm like it's like getting pretty tense like i'll admit like i, th- I think like the anxiety was like ramping up a little bit and i've never been so underwhelmed by the conclusion of the action sequence then, like, he just runs across their backs and that's it yeah yeah but, like nothing happens also it's just Maybe I've just like seen too many movies at this point, but it's just like so obvious that Roger Moore is like never in that scene. Like any time yeah. that they show the crocodiles, it's like only his legs. Uh, totally well, the stunt double. Also, the rattlesnake. We forgot about the rattlesnake as well. Oh, I hate snakes. Which Can't talk about that. Placed in the uh, yeah. If you hate snakes, and this is a really rough scene for you, but I love like the again. We talked about how weirdly the editing, how weird the editing is, because they just didn't have, I guess, the ability to do some stuff with special effects or whatever. Like you know, we have a what is you know a real, very real snake like crawling around in the bathroom, and then it gets up to Bond. He turns around with like the flames. Yeah, yeah, but he he he. You see a shot of him like you know doing the can, the aerosol can, and the flames come out, and then you see what is just like so obviously like a toy a snake, snake that just yeah. like <laughs> flips over, and that's the end of it. It's just like okay, well. Again, a little bit anticlimactic, but yeah, I felt the same way about the the crocodiles. It was like, okay, we're gonna get like a freaking that like that movie Crawl, um, you know, which is you know a, a wow. creature feature. I, incredible um, comparison to Live and Let yeah, Die. Yeah, Crawl is a better movie. I will just go out on a limb and say that right now. I believe but Crawl it. is better than Live and Let Die. But most movies um, are. Yeah, I wanted him to at least be like you know fighting with the crocodiles, you know, having to like pro- close their jaws or something like that. You know, something kind of intense. But yeah, Absolutely instead nothing. he just like he runs across their backs. Yeah, uh, Jay, yeah. do you agree? The way Scott feels about snakes is how I feel about gators. Um, gators. So I'm just sitting here like, oh my, you like should, I, the anxiety. Watch Annihilation. Sure. The the anxiety actually really ramped up for me in that scene. Like, and again, like once you saw, I haven't seen nearly as many movies, but once you saw like the three gators just like perfectly in a line as he like looks off to the side. You're like, oh, he's not going to run across them, is he? And like, of course he does. And you're like, okay. Um, I thought the snakes looked silly too. I guess I will like give you know props to just go back to like some more like the action, the the uh, airplane and car chase scene, which you've already you know raved about. Like, I I actually did really enjoy that. It, it was absolutely absurd, but it was like I actually really enjoyed that. And, you know, you have the classic element, like, again, this is a trope that you see in a lot of, like, comedies, really, is like, oh, we had, like, the student driver who was also yeah. in the, the airplane with Bond, and, um, you know, the <laughs> they drive into the doors as they're closing, and the wings, you know, pop off and everything. It's 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 fun to watch, again, because it's it's all practical effects, right, for, for you know, you're, you're not seeing any sort of, like, CGI and stuff like that, really, um, which and, would get On a similar days. note, with the, with the double-decker bus in San Monique, and just, like, just rakes the top half of it off, yeah. I'm like, is that really how that works with physics? <laughs> like, like, you say it's practical effects, and I guess it is technically practical effects, but yeah. that is not a real bus. Like, that is just, like, not what happens when, <laughs> when you get something like that. There's no way. How fast would you have to be going? I want to get, like, Mythbusters on this right now. Like, It's also, like, like so in, in, it's actually not just a bridge. It's a bridge with, like, a, a huge blade on, on the bottom of it for when cars that are bigger than the height limits come by. So it just shaves it off. So it doesn't actually stop traffic. You can keep moving. Yeah. It'll be fine. 
Um, and then, of course, we have to mention the villain Beth. We've alluded to it, but yeah, the, he has like this Holy compressed hell. air gun, basically. The first time comes out of nowhere. Cool. I don't even remember that gun. Where did that no. gun even come from? I don't know because Q doesn't actually show up in the movie at all, right? He he doesn't like yeah. all that we really see in terms of gadgets are like what, like the watch or something. It's, I mean, I don't even know. it's literally yeah. just the watch. Um, but yeah. but yeah, but so this compressed air gun, and I love the first time it gets deployed when. Uh, Kananga, Mr. Big, like shoots the couch that that guy is sitting in, and it just starts inflating until he falls off the couch. It's just like yeah. so ridiculous. But then, of course, yeah, Bond fires the gun into Mr. Big, and he pops, not like a human being would pop, with like blood and bones and everything like everywhere, but with literally like a balloon. He just pops, and there's just no nothing left behind. I mean, it's it's it really is like you can't believe that this was. It, especially after like watching Goldfinger. I mean, I know there's some kind of wild stuff in Goldfinger, but like the craziest thing you see in that movie is somebody throwing a razor sharp hat or whatever. In this movie, you see someone literally pop like a balloon. And, but and, and it's and this is not even considered one of the craziest of Roger Moore's Bond films. So that that'll tell you something right there. But um, they'd be wild and yeah. Um, I mean, I think the last thing to talk about before we wrap up. I mean, and we've we've sort of given our thoughts on this already, but our annual, our weekly, you know, does the plot make any sense? Can we decode what is going on here? Um, I'm guessing the answer is, is going to be no. You know, we, we start off, we have these MI6 agents who have been assassinated, right? We see this opening sequence at the UN where um, this guy just falls over. Um, and then we, you know, Bond gets sent out and Mr. Big gets involved. And then there's obviously something. But I just, you know, I, I, at a certain point, like, heroin smuggling gets brought up and i'm like oh like is that what's going on here like am i supposed to have picked up on the fact that like these were drug smugglers prior to this um i think the field the i think the field yeah, is when you were supposed I mean, to pick yeah, up on I, it but uh, i guess that that is that is the point but that you know that's pretty late into the movie and then you know you have the whole voodoo element of it as well which we see early on and then comes back at the end we i mean we kind of get a little flair for it throughout because like there's like this voodoo totem thing that kills uh, Rosie, right? Like, by just like shooting a bullet from, from it. Um, but I, I don't know, did, did, were you guys able to, to piece together any more than I was able to? Probably, probably not, but I, I don't know, maybe I'm just dumb. Jay? It sounds like that by like flooding the streets of the United States with heroin, he was going to drive a bunch of drug dealing families out of business and then run it himself with the increased number of addicts like that, that again, that part I feel like was actually like explained. It just, the execution doesn't really make a ton of sense. I also don't really know how you can do this in such a timely manner where you don't end up getting like shot in the face before you were able to do this. Like again, like there, there was like the, you know, won't this piss a lot of people off? And he was just like, yeah, like, I, I, I don't know that, that, that is my takeaway with what, again, the plan was supposed to be. I don't really know. Like, Again, like what, what, what that means? Like, how, how are you getting? How are you like doubling the number of addicts like in the U.S. just by like flooding? It? Again, again, are you are you just like walking up like people and just giving like you know like there's no there's no like real execution. It's more just like I'm gonna put a lot of heroin on the streets. I'm gonna create more addicts and I'm gonna profit off of it at the end. Well, good news is that that's exactly what pharma companies have done with opioids in the last twenty years. So uh... I mean, yeah. 
Yeah, and I mean, look, we were glad this movie that, before they started before they consulted McKenzie for their strategy on opioid oh, rollout. Dear God, we we might be we might be glossing over the problematic elements of the movie because they are just so obvious, probably. But you know, the the tokenizing a little bit of like you know, all the all the villains are black, they're drug dealers, and there's also this weird like supernatural taboo voodoo thing that is going on that we're not meant to try to understand it all except just to say that oh this is evil and you know supernatural and everything that they're that they're doing um there's no really positive connotation that can be taken from it um which is which is all a little little rough but scott any any thoughts on the plot here okay um but i was never bored sorry i i, I know this is like I mean, yeah. a point that came up in it's our true. in our group in our group chat before uh before recording but man i had no idea what was going on but like it was funny. <laughs> like I wasn't and, bored. And again, they keep the action going, right? So like you don't, they don't give you a lot of time to stop and like realize, hey, wait a minute, <laughs> what the heck is going on here? Like the, this plot, I don't understand why they're doing anything. It's just like, okay, we're gonna move from one, you know, fun goofy sequence to the next. And so I, I wonder if Martin Scorsese thinks this is cinema. Um, I'm gonna go out on a limb and say no, but I've been wrong before. Um. Let's yeah. tweet him. Let's ask him. When's the Scorsese countdown coming? I'm ready for that one. Um, Man, that's gonna that's gonna be a fun one. It would be a lot of movies. Though. I was gonna say um, we should start now. <laughs> okay, but uh, maybe we could we could start that now. But we're gonna finish this uh, episode now uh, by moving into our wrap up. Uh, Jay, what was your favorite senior moment from *Living That Die*? I think I actually have to give it to the the car airplane chase in the hangar again. Like it was. It was ridiculous, but like that—that that is one of those moments where, like, you you talk about, you know, there's so much going on, and like, it, the movie doesn't give you time to stop and think. Well, like, jokes on you, movie. I overthink like everything, and so I'm sitting there like wondering the entire time, even when I'm supposed to be just watching this crazy stuff, like, what is going on? But the no wonder you love Christopher Nolan movies so much because that's what he wants you to do. It just yeah, overthink. this is why he can't wait for the Snyder cut. It's all finally gonna make sense. Oh my god, oh, stop! Yeah. <laughs> And so, yeah, I mean, but but the but the car airplane chase scene, like that is probably again, again like aside from the beginning, which I actually did like, like that was the one scene in the middle where like I've kind of just forgotten, like what is going on in the plot, and like it's it's not an issue. Like I'm actually just enjoying like, you know, this ludicrous scene. So that was pretty fun. Scott, your favorite scene or moment? Yeah, I guess I'll I'll go with a moment. Um, because I don't have too many favorite scenes in this one. Um, I will say that there was... So the first time Bond just stupidly uh, goes into Foy of Soul and gets taken into the, like, the back rooms with Mr. Big and Teehee and whatnot, there's uh, his first encounter, I guess, with Mr. Big is this one where he's like introducing himself in his typical Bond way. <laughs> and I just found the line so funny when Mr. Big goes, nah, man, names are for tombstones. And like walks, yeah. out, walks out the door. Like, well, because because a lot of the a lot, a lot of the dialogue that the black characters say is very clearly written by like an old white guy. Or again, like the the uh, the cab driver, of course, has the great line about like uh, oh for twenty dollars, I'll take you to a Ku Klux Klan cookout. Uh, first of all, I just was hoping that, we can make it through the episode without mentioning that line. But the fact that he oh, says yeah. the whole the whole name, like the fact that he says Ku Klux Klan, I'm like. No, like that, that, that right there is just wrong from the beginning. Um, that, that, is, oh that would not. Be. And then, yeah, just like they keep calling like any white person is a honky, basically like that, that same scene you're talking about, Scott, it's like yeah. Bond shows up and he's like, take this honky out back and waste it. 
<laughs> and Bond's like, waste him. Is that a good thing? Uh, <laughs> again, it's just all of this ridiculous. But yeah, I mean, I, 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 the writing, the writing in this movie. And I mean, yeah, I didn't really say my thoughts, I guess, on Pepper, but it, it's it's a very it, it, sort of gross Southern stereotype of like this racist white cop, which, well, may, may, maybe it's a uh, more realistic than we would like to admit. But um, he, you know, he is just so over the top and even compared to the rest of the movie, which is so over the top, he just seems like he's on a totally different level for everything else. But, um, you know, we won't have to endure him next time with man with the golden gun because we're skipping that one um my favorite scene is probably the the boat chase just because i think that's something unique you know a type of action scene that we we don't necessarily see with these boats just like careening on land and you know just really uh again it's it's over the top but i like over the top action i like seeing stuff that um, is crazy and that i haven't seen before um and i think this uh this certainly fits the bill so yeah um, let's put a score on it. Jay, live and let die. What do you give it? You know, you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast that like the stuff you watch, like this is nothing compared to that. But I honestly don't like I, I'm sitting here like I don't really know what to do with myself in terms of giving <laughs> this a score. I mean, I'm going to go ahead and just give it a 2.8 and be done with it. Wow. A 2.8. I don't, I don't um, want to watch this movie again. I don't really want to rewatch like clips. I'll listen to the song, but that's all you're getting out of me. Okay, Scott, um, are you any higher than a 2.8? I'm a little higher than a 2.8, 4.1. Uh, yeah, and I give it a uh, 6.5 uh, because I did enjoy the film in the end. Um, but um, it's 4.1 worth of it, but that's about it. It is by no, it is by no means a great movie, but I it is more successful to me than a bad movie or an average movie that I am also bored by. Uh, the fact that I was not bored by it does does get, score some points for me because at the end of the day, I don't come into these movies expecting like a super coherent plot or great gender politics or anything like that. So on on a, on a more conventional scale against against all other movies, yeah, it's probably a you know more of where Scott rated it. But in the in the world of Bond, it's successful more or less. So six point five for me. Um, but that concludes this episode of the 007 countdown. Um, thank you for listening. Uh, if you've enjoyed the podcast, uh, don't forget about our Patreon page, patreon.com slash media pods. Also check out the some like it Scott podcast feed where you found this podcast, uh, and check out our other stuff. Some like it Scott champs lunch. Um, you know, the drill. Um, and of course we hope you will be back for our next episode of the 007 countdown on which we will be reviewing, uh, the spy who loves me. Uh, our second entry starring Roger Moore. Uh, but until then, for Scott Shelton and Jay Habib, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you next time.